So Molly, you know, techies are always talking about building the killer app, right, to solve some big problem. And I think city leaders, you know, kind of in a similar way, they want to, you know, solve city problems by building the perfect policy or the perfect regulation. The killer but, regulation. The killer reg. <laughs> but I think both could learn something, particularly cities, frankly, from this class that I took in grad school, which is my favorite class. It was taught by Daniel Kahneman, who you may remember, you know, won the Nobel Prize for behavioral economics, which is mm. the science of how to influence or nudge people to behave in certain ways because people are complicated and don't always behave in the ways that economists or policymakers, frankly, predict. Now, anyway, one of Kahneman's discoveries, which has really stuck with me, is that people are much more motivated to avoid a loss than to pursue a gain. So, like, for example, if you ask someone what would they pay for a chance to avoid losing $100 or what they would pay for a chance to win $100, they're always willing to pay more money to avoid the loss. Hmm. It's like loss aversion. So the private sector, they're all over this, right? So I fly more than I would like. And whenever I buy a plane ticket, it asks me to buy travel insurance for that flight. And it actually makes me click on a button next to a line that says, you are at risk of losing $438 on your flight. <laughs> I hate that. Are you sure you're okay with that? They always make me feel so guilty. Right. What's well, the point, right? Because it is a classic nudge. They've actually read the literature. But what if, and this is kind of where I want to go in this episode today, what if policymakers, what if cities could take advantage of those same insights in a way that could actually make city life better in a whole series of different ways. Right. Isn't that what Durham, North Carolina is doing to nudge people not to drive downtown mm -hmm. during rush hour to minimize Yeah, congestion? your favorite topic, well, like getting people out of their <laughs> cars. Of, exactly. Of their cars. I, I'm all on board for those kinds of nudges. I think it's also important for us to ask, like, what are the potential unintended consequences or pitfalls of governments embracing nudges to change how we were behaving in our daily lives. Yeah, feels like I could get creepy real fast. Well, let's get into it on this episode. We're taking a trip to Nudge City today on Technopolis, so stay with us. Welcome to Technopolis, where technology is disrupting, remaking, and sometimes overrunning our cities. I'm Jim Capsis. I was a climate negotiator in the Obama administration, and now I advise tech startups. And I'm Molly Turner. I teach urban innovation at the Berkeley Haas School of Business, and I was the first policy director at Airbnb. Today we're going to investigate how governments are using nudges, coupled with technology, to solve really big problems. Or what we're going to refer to on today's show as nudge tech. That's right. And later in the show, we're going to talk with Anthony Barrows from Ideas42, a nonprofit that works with cities to nudge citizens to help the public good. But first, we're going to talk with Emily Baylord. She's the CEO of InClass Today, which is a company that's helping school districts across the country use nudges to keep kids in school. We actually used to work together at Opower. Oh, so you guys used to nudge people together? <laughs> yeah, it was cool. We help people save energy by comparing their energy use to their neighbors. It was like the classic keeping up with the Joneses nudge. People get a letter with a chart that compared their energy use to their neighbors. And you know what? Turns out saving money is nice, but not nearly as motivating as competing with your neighbors. So, in other words, you shamed people into saving energy through peer pressure? <laughs> mm -hmm, totally. <laughs> that would work on me. I mean, peer pressure gets me out of bed on Sunday morning to go to the gym with my friends. 
Well, Emily and in class, they're betting it's going to help with getting to school, too. (laughs) They're trying to tackle uh, the problem of absenteeism, which is kids just not going to school, which doesn't just hurt graduation rates. It hurts kids for the rest of their lives. So let's hear from Emily. So districts hire us because they know that they have um, more students who are chronically absent than they want. What is chronically absent? What's the definition of that? Yeah, chronically absent is when a student misses at least 10% of school. And there's a handful of states, including a few of the biggest states like California and Texas, that made the decision that schools and school districts would be funded based on the attendance of their students. So it's kind of this unique thing where there's a financial motivation, there's a policy motivation, and then there's the biggest motivation, which is what's best for students. And they're all kind of pointing in the same direction, which is improving attendance and reducing absenteeism. But the problem is, is that there just aren't very many good solutions out there. So what we do is we actually take advantage of, you know, those norming tendencies that we all have and some of those um, innate behavioral motivations that we have, like kind of the monkey brain in all of us. Um, and um, and use those to our advantage. And so um, the the core thing that we do is we send parents what we call absence reports. And these are essentially nudge letters that are designed to show the parent information about their child that's going to nudge them to a new behavior. In this case, we want to nudge them to getting their kids to school. And so we send them an absence report. And the absence report has what we call a social comparison. So we compare their child's absences with their child's classmates' absences in the same grade at the same school. Basically, you know, what we're doing is we're showing parents context. And so it's the first time that a parent sees, you know, first of all, how many times their child has been absent because we all lose track. Um, Parents, on average, underestimate the number of absences their child has had by a factor of two. So we all lose track. But we're also showing them what's normal. And so it's going to be really eye-opening to see that, you know, on average, your child's classmates have only been absent three days so far this year, and your child's been absent 10 days. What makes your company a tech company then? Where's the technology that's powering all of this, if at all? Yeah, I know. It's it's, it's so funny because it's hidden. You know, what we're doing is we're sending snail mail. Yeah. But there's a lot of technology to produce that snail mail. So it all starts with getting attendance data from school districts. And we send it through kind of a – we do analytics on it. I kind of think of it as an Excel spreadsheet. And then we we essentially take that Excel spreadsheet that we're receiving, all that data about students, and we analyze it to figure out, you know, which of these students should be receiving an absence report this week. How do you figure that out? By analyzing the data we've seen, we've been able to see, you know, which students see the most behavior change when we mail them. Mm-hmm. And then we um, look at factors like like the students' absences and relative absences to their peers to figure out, you know, which version of the absence report they should receive. Something that we're really excited about and where we're going over the course of the next year is being able to um, become more personalized in our understanding of why a student might be absent. So what technology do you need for that? So one great example is, is weather data. Huh. Why do you need weather data? One really common reason why a student is absent it comes down to transportation. And we heard anecdotally from some superintendents, and this is like, like outside of Chicago where it gets super cold, 
And they said, hey, you know, one of the things that has been really successful for us is changing our bus routes on really cold days to send buses into neighborhoods that are theoretically walking distance to school, but are just a little bit far on a really cold day. And when we did that, we really saw our attendance improve on those days. And so what that helped us to realize is that, first of all, there's potential solutions like that. But also there's, you know, there's categories of students where the weather is impacting their attendance. And when we looked at the data, that's what we, we really saw that in the data as well. Why are you guys using paper to reach families? And do you intend to use other forms of communications like email and text? Yeah. I think people would be surprised that you're using mail. Mail feels very 1990s. You know, it feels so old school, right? Especially in this age. At least of, it's not fax. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The only thing worse would be sending faxes to people. Um, school districts don't have good, reliable um, phone numbers for their families. But even when you just focus on the parents who we have, you know, a good email address for or a good phone number for them, it still turns out that that paper is the most effective. Um, so there was a really cool study that was done um, in New York City where um, parents were randomly assigned to receive text messages about their child's attendance or not receive text messages. And what it showed is that just sending text messages with similar messaging as our absence reports, um, it did not impact attendance at all. And and we would so actually, ex- yeah, we'd actually kind of expect that because. You know, being absent is something that doesn't happen every day. You know, it's not, there's no action that you can take right when you receive a text message to make sure that you get your kid to to school, you know, three days from now when something arises that makes it hard for you to do it. Whereas a piece of paper, you know, you get it in the mail and it usually has a shelf life. It kind of sits on your kitchen table or your coffee table. You know, you pass by it, you glance at it, it serves as a reminder. And so, you know, on that day that you're you're struggling or that your kid doesn't want to go to school and you're going to push a little bit harder to try to get them to go. Um, you have you know, that the, visual reminder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Visual reminder is a much better job of, of prompting of prompting parents. Right. Emily, how how do you determine what students or what parents get what messages? I mean, it sounds like there are, you know, I don't know you said a thousand or thousands of combinations of messages that you guys can send to students, how do you determine who gets what? What's the science behind it? Yeah. So to give you to give you probably the most important example is I mentioned, you know, that we compare your child's attendance to their classmates. And we call that our comparison graph. And it turns out that when you show that comparison to parents of students who are missing more than average, you know, more days of school than average, it can be really effective at improving their attendance. But when you show that same graph to parents of students who are doing better than average or are doing a lot worse than average, it has the unintended consequence of not just having no impact on their absences, but it can actually increase them. They, like, it's demotivating. They give up. Presumably that kid is missing school for like profound structural reasons. It's not because, you know, if you told them they were missing 30 percent of class, would they really show up all of a sudden? So you're right in that the research into why students are chronically absent has shown that families are really struggling with more entrenched challenges. Things like um, health issues, 
Um, they might be homeless or not have you know secure and stable housing. Mm-hmm. They might lack transportation or at least um, or at least transportation that's reliable. At the same time, when we send these absence reports, we see a ten to fifteen percent improvement in in absenteeism across the board. So we still see that improvement with students that are missing 30% of school days. And so one of the things that we're excited to roll out next year, we're going to get further in terms of being able to predict which students are most likely to be absent in a given week, doing things like looking at historical attendance data for a student and and comparing it to weather data to figure out, hey, is this is Jim's child a child who who is more likely to be absent when it's really cold or when it snows? And if so, then we can, you know, give Jim a call when bad weather is predicted to figure out if he has a transportation plan in place or if he needs help. I assume you have not received one of your own absentee letters. But what would you feel like, do you think, if you did get one of these letters? Well, it's so funny you say that because I actually just um, pulled my kindergartner out of school for a day so that she could spend some time with her grandparents. And, and you, know, I, you know, one of the reasons that I find this so compelling is that I'm just like all the parents that we're reaching. I don't keep track of my kindergartner's attendance. And when she, you know, when she missed that day of school to see her grandparents, you know, I think it was the right decision. Her grandparents live far away, and I think it's important for them to see each other. I probably would have told you, like, she's only in kindergarten, you know, but she definitely, you know, missed a day. And it was clear, you know, on the next Monday when she showed up at school, you know, she had a tougher day at school than she otherwise would have had. But you're um, so, her parent, like, it's your decision, right? Don't you think it should be your decision? Yeah, Absolutely. But I think we're not, you know, we're not telling parents that it's not their decision. We're just helping parents to better understand the impact of their decisions so that they can make the decision that's right for them. Emily, what's it like to try to convince investors in Silicon Valley to invest <laughs> they in love what you're doing? It's kind of hilarious um, when I talk to investors that don't have experience investing in companies serving the K-12 public education system. Because oftentimes investors are bringing like a consumer technology mm-hmm. company mindset to things. Oh, tell us a story. There's got to be something fun, fun, fun story. Well, so so kind of- one example is um, we are capacity constrained right now. And so we're having to, to pick and choose and we can't serve everybody, which is something that we're hoping to change very quickly. That's a good problem to have for a company, by the way. Yeah, it's a great problem to have. But it's funny because when I tell investors that investors who aren't experienced in education, their reaction is, you know, it sounds like your pricing must be too low. Why don't you increase your prices by 10x? <laughs> and, and it's like, well, gouge the, the school point, districts. Right. It's like the whole point of what we're trying to do is help school districts. So I think what Emily and InClass today are doing is really interesting, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering, 10% doesn't feel like that much. Is that just nudging mm-hmm. the problem? I mean, is it worth the investment that school districts are making? Well, you know, your reaction reminds me of something that used to frustrate me a lot at Opower, which is we would save on average 2 to 3% on families' energy bills mm-hmm. every year. But the environmentalists, they would be like, Jim, that doesn't sound like very much. Can't you guys do more? And I was like... 
you guys don't get it. Two to three percent times millions of households is a really big deal. That's a lot of freaking energy to save. Yeah. So it's the same idea with schools. Schools in many states actually get their funding tied to how many days their kids are actually in school. So when you actually get kids into school, it has a double bottom line impact. Okay, I get what you're saying. Bring schools some money. It can help a lot of kids across a school district. But, you know, Emily gave this story about taking her kids out of school to go see their grandparents. How would she feel about that conversation when her school chastises her for doing that? I mean, how would you feel if you got that note? You know, there's a difference between a nudge and a shove. And uh, <laughs> one example, when I was at O-Power in the early days, we used to send reports with a frowny face uh, if you were like a big energy hog. And people <laughs> hated it. I mean, our, one of our I clients can used to get, they got so much hate mail that then they, they suspended the program. And let me tell you, we never did that again. <laughs> So, <laughs> All right. So I want to know more about the impacts of nudges on urban life. So let's talk to Anthony from Ideas42 about how he's helping city leaders use nudges to make good policy work better. Anthony, uh, I think a lot of folks may not know behavioral science, but they know the word nudge because it's part of now like, like sort of the lingua franca. But you don't seem to be a fan of that term. Why not? When you talk about nudges, you're kind of limiting the scope of the kinds of behavioral interventions that you're putting on the table. So the notion underlying it, which many people call libertarian paternalism, is one that we endorse. (laughs) What is that? That's a loaded term. Yeah, the core insight at the heart of the idea is that you should never impinge on people's freedom to choose. But when possible, if you know that something is good, and particularly if you know that people want to engage in it, you should make it a lot easier for people to do that thing or get that service or, you know, have that kind of result. Nudge them so, in that direction. Indeed, indeed, while preserving their opportunity to make different kinds of choices if that's what they want. Those are the kind of things that are included in that world of nudges. So very small contextual changes that can have really large impacts um, at very low cost and that don't impinge on anyone's freedom. We think that those are amazing things, but that's not the entirety of applied behavioral science. There are a lot of applications, it seems like, for behavioral science to education. What are some other examples of other applications of behavioral science? Can you give us a couple quick examples? Anywhere that human beings are making choices or taking actions is an excellent place for a behavioral intervention. And so if you think about choices and actions that matter a lot to human well-being, those are probably the places that Ideas42 focuses on. So education is key, but so is health. Um, So is the environment. So is public policy and government programs. And we do a ton of work in each of those areas. Like what? Give us some. Sure. So, you know, we do a lot of work in cities at Ideas42. And we've got behavioral design teams that operate in Chicago and in New York City. And so among the kinds of things that we try to do are helping people that are getting food stamps, SNAP, recertify more frequently and earlier in the process. We've been running a series of experiments to try to figure out what the right style of messaging is and in which format and what kinds of language and framing works best to try to get the attention of people who want and need the support of the SNAP program to take the various steps that they need to to maintain access to to that program and its benefits. 
What's preventing them from taking access, Anthony? You've written about the behavioral challenge of mental bandwidth. Is that one of the barriers? And if so, can you explain what that is? The core insight of that scarcity research is that when you don't have enough of any key resource, that creates cognitive effects that are powerful and measurable. And we've all actually experienced this in a way that you know people will be able to resonate with quickly. So if you've been, let's say, facing a deadline at work, and you need to turn in some deliverable, and it's really getting down to the wire. <laughs> we don't have any, any experience with that, Molly. <laughs> you all don't work on deadline, right? Yeah, you don't never. know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, never. But when you're facing a deadline like that or trying to turn in a you know grant report or a term paper in school or something like that, you've probably experienced the phenomenon of being able to focus very intently on getting that thing done. And that comes along with being able to ignore lots of other information, other stimuli in your environment. Uh, and, and that's what we call the focus dividend, that when something is super urgent, you're able to really fixate on it and ignore other things. And that's really adaptive. However, when what your life is characterized by is a constant lack of really important things that you then have to fixate on in order to continue surviving... That's chronic scarcity. You're always dealing with the next emergency. And what you're not able to do in that circumstance is really think about the big picture or even to think about things that are important but not urgent. So if I'm toggling from figuring out how I pay rent to how I put food on the table to making a decision about whether I buy prescription meds or pay my light bill, that doesn't give me any chance to really like plan out my course of study to get my bachelor's degree and whatever. And so that's that's the very short caricatured version of the experience of a lot of people that live in poverty here in the U.S. and around the world is that they're constantly having to figure out all of the things that they can pause cognitively so that they can focus in on that most important thing. So, Anthony, all of these new technologies today are smartphones, email, all these automatic reminders. How's tech changed behavioral science applications? The beautiful part of digital technology is that it's kind of hard to fake and it's easy to automate and it's cheap to deliver. In the past, it can be really expensive to deliver these interventions. Now that we've got this form of digital technology where we can send emails and see if people open them or not, observe digitally whether they filed the FAFSA or not, whether they are enrolled in school or not, whether they graduated or not. It just makes all of this stuff much easier, quicker, and cheaper to both run the experiment and then analyze its results. And here in the U.S., even among people that don't have a ton of money, what we see is that people have smartphones. Hmm. Now, this is a little bit of a double-edged sword because these smartphones are often the primary or only way that people access the Internet. So it's been super important for us to make sure that we're designing things that are optimized for that mobile environment. Anthony, what's the role of public policy in terms of how it supports behavioral interventions? So I think that behavioral interventions and public policy are actually a natural marriage. In the U.S., we used to have a president that thought that things like this were good and connected to people's well-being. <laughs> um, his name was Barack Obama. <laughs> and he actually stood up. Um, a behavioral sciences team within the federal government and also issued an executive order that said, hey, you know, federal agencies, you all should be using this stuff to make sure that we're delivering government services in a way that's efficient and effective, given what we know about the way humans choose and act. And so the social and behavioral sciences team did some amazing work. Ideas 42 lent them some staff. 
And so this stuff just makes sense, presuming that there's the political will and the desire to invest in having it happen. And so just think about things like tax returns or like accessing financial aid. Behavioral science can give us a recipe for making these things easier for people to deal with, um, easier to get access to the benefits that they need. And so I'm, I'm really hopeful that, you know, in a couple years, we'll maybe be in a place where we can revive that conversation. Is there any reason why behavioral interventions and or nudges couldn't be used for, let's say, more nefarious purposes, like in the hands of like Nicholas Maduro or Vladimir Putin or even Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's bad actors everywhere. And the behavioral science toolkit is just that a set of insights about how human cognition works and how human behavior works. So your motivation is the only thing that would prevent these things from being used for ill. And, you know, I'm not a huge proponent of using these things for anything other than helping people live better lives. But there's plenty of people out there that do use these insights and have for decades to you know, be a little bit more manipulative or coercive. So many of these techniques are used to sell you things. And a lot of these techniques are used and well-known in marketing, um, not necessarily from a behavioral science perspective, but from, you know, a best practices perspective to get you to buy more soda or whatever. anywhere. There's more Technopolis right after this quick break. We just heard from Anthony at Ideas42, the nonprofit that brings nudges to city and other governments to improve policy outcomes. So I think, you know, Anthony's point may be obvious, but the idea that uh, the nudger matters to the nudgee, I think, makes a lot of sense. I mean, if I got a note from my school, my my kid's elementary school, it says, hey, Cora is actually not going to school as often as she should relative to other kids. I'd be like, oh, my gosh, I got to get her to school more. Thank you, school. Uh And I trust you. But if, you know, I'm a new immigrant to the community and uh, I just sent my kid to school and it's the first year in the school and I get a note in the mail and I don't really understand it fully, but I get a sense that I'm being judged for being a bad parent and have to get my kid to school more, you know, maybe I actually am worried that child services is going to show up and that could be a really scary experience for me. And so I think that really we need to think about who's doing the nudging and do we trust that they have the right intentions. That gets exactly to the heart of one of the biggest questions I have about all of this, which is the school district actually has a lot of authority over people's lives. So does city government. And if they're sending a nudge, how free are we truly to act however we want? This is maybe where this idea of, you know, Anthony called it libertarian paternalism breaks down, right? Do we really have the freedom to opt out. Well, I I think that cities and school districts, for that reason, they need to be really sensitive about this because if they nudge too much or if they're insensitive, it could cause a nudge lash from the public and (laughs) that would kind of defeat, right, the whole point. Yeah. So how do they do that? Well, I think there's some light touch examples uh, where cities are doing it the right way. I mean, you mentioned what Durham, North Carolina is doing, and Mm -hmm. I think it's a good one. I mean, they're trying to get people out of their cars to just reduce, you know, congestion downtown. And how are they doing it? They're engaging 
workers who have been offered to participate in this program, so not being forced to. One group gets personalized emails with a route that they can take that doesn't include their car. And the other group, if they take the bus, they get a chance to win $163 or something like that. That seems like a nudge that most people you know, wouldn't feel particularly uh, overwhelmed by. I'd win the lottery to take you the would, bus. You would, was because you don't drive a car. <laughs> you wouldn't be one people yeah, changing your behavior. Pay me that money. I know. <laughs> One of the reasons these nudges work so well is because people already know in their gut that driving downtown during rush hour is not the best idea. But what they don't know is what the right alternative is. And so by making it really easy for them, by giving them the personalized route map, right, you're taking their intentions and allowing them to follow through on them with a new action that otherwise they would not have done. So I like this, the idea of helping people kind of do something that they want to do in the first place. Like what Anthony talked about with the problem of bandwidth overload, nudges are great for breaking through and giving just the right reminder at just the right time. But I'm wondering about consent. Like, do we know when we're being nudged? Should we know when we're being nudged? It begs the question, can we even ask someone permission to nudge them? Does the nudge still work? Yeah, it kind of depends. I think that's a, a slippery slope. I mean, there are cases where if you go too far in the direction of asking people for permission, the nudge falls apart, right? So like one classic example is organ donation. There are a couple countries out there that have been very successful in dramatically increasing the rates of organ donation, France, mm-hmm. Spain, and a couple others, where the government, they automatically enroll the citizens into this program. Mm-hmm. But then they give them information that, hey, you're being enrolled in this program. And if you would like to opt out, here is an easy way for you to get off the list. Mm -hmm. But if they had actually sent people information and said, hey, would you become an organ donor, which is what happens in, frankly, most places, um, that the number of people who would actually enroll, it would be a tiny fraction of, uh, you know, this opt out type program. So I think it's really a balancing act between preserving choice without undermining the outcomes that we want. I love that. I mean, I want to be a part of organ donation programs, and I feel like a lot of people do. And so these kind of opt-out solutions make sense, I think, as long as we're informing people about why this program exists, being transparent Mm -hmm. about it, protecting their data, describing what the goal is of this program. I think all of Mm -hmm. that would really help not only get more people to participate, but also prevent a potential nudge lash. (laughs) Well, that's really been the purpose of the episode, right? To unpack how nudges are expanding all around us as tech makes them easier and more effective. Thanks for joining us in Technopolis. Meet us back here next week when we ask whether our favorite food delivery apps may kill the neighborhood restaurant as we know it. Could our delivery addiction cause a restaurant apocalypse? You'll just have to wait and listen. Until then, I'm Molly Turner. And I'm Jim Capsis. Nicole Flato is the City Lab editor and a professional nudger. <laughs> Virginia Laura is our associate producer, and Lizzie Jacobs is our executive producer. Josh Rogeson is our engineer. Our theme music is by Copilot. Thanks to the City Lab staff for their helpful input. I would also like to thank Mark Layton, Owen Service, Michael Halsworth of the Behavioral Insights team, and Kelly Schultz from What Work Cities for their input on this episode. And a special thanks to Daniel Kahneman, Eldar Shafir, Emily Pronin, and all my professors from Princeton that inspired this episode. For more on Nudge Tech and cities and other topics relevant to our urban lives, head to citylab.com. And don't miss out on a single episode. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. And tell a friend.